the scriptures, the passage that are on your sheet as we go, as they come up. But let's pray. Jesus, this is, uh, I guess there hasn't been a week where we've talked about something where we don't just need wise counsel, but we need cleansing mercy. We've already lived our lives. We're two decades in and four decades in. There's so much water under the bridge with our decision-making, with our friendships, with how we've done conflict, with how we've dated or been terrified to enter into something so scary like that. So, oh, we don't just need you to coach us forward. We need you to cleanse our past. You are both wise sage and winsome savior. And everyone in the room needs you as both. So now would you come and animate your word. It is alive, it is active, it is able to make us wise for salvation. So we're banking on that being true. We believe it to be true. Please come and show us, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, I said it, but last week, as we were looking at uh, wise and foolish dating, we kind of lingered over Proverbs 9, which was this compare and contrast of wisdom and foolishness. It's a beautiful chapter of the Bible that really vividly uh, describes the difference between the two. And we really boiled it down and said that the essence of foolishness is an inability to distinguish the real world from fantasy or deception flip that around, you can say that wisdom is the ability or the savvy, the knack for being able to see what's real or be in tune with reality. That's really what wisdom is, being in tune with reality. So if you remember my nieces at Christmas, I was telling you all the story of uh, one of my first Christmases at Anna's house uh, after we got married, and all my nieces are playing in the other room, and they're assigning the roles. You're the mommy, you're the daddy, you're the baby, you're the brother. And the mommy, Loxley, goes into the kitchen, right? And remember the story. She starts, uh, I start hearing from the living room the click, click, click of the gas lighter trying to light the gas stove where gas is pouring out into the kitchen. And I run in there. I was like, Loxley, no, 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 no. That's a real stove. Y'all can't play with this stove. That's not the play kitchen in there. You got to stay out of the kitchen. Children live in the blur between fantasy and reality, and it's cute when you're six, right? It's painful when you're 16 or 22, or 40, and you're living in the blur between fantasy and reality, the play world and the real world. And we get cut on the sharp edges of a real world that doesn't much care whether or not we see it as real or whether we're kind of deceived. So we experience the most pain and confusion and regret, I think, in our dating lives uh, even if you don't, you would say you don't really have a dating life, the, the, the claim still stands. We experience the most pain and confusion in this piece of our lives, specifically in the places we're most blurring fact and fiction. The way God made the world to operate and men and women to relate versus the way we're just winging it or doing it. So let's do a little refresher of where we went last week. We said, uh, what is reality? Um, when you zoom out of the entire Bible and you look at it as a whole, what does God say about the way he's created men and women to work and have relationship with each other? We saw that there's three basic kinds of relationships or natures of relationships between men and women. The first is marriage, husbands and wives. It makes sense, right? 
The second that he establishes and creates is family. Dads and little girls and dads and sons and moms and brothers and sisters and kids. Family relationships. And then friendships or neighborly kind of relationships. Relationships with people who aren't a spouse and aren't in your immediate family. And you remember the thing that we said last week. God doesn't just create these categories of relationship, but the nature of a relationship determines the behaviors that fit that relationship. Remember? The kind of relationship determines the kind of behaviors that fit that relationship. So, the way that a husband and a wife kiss is life-giving and beautiful inside of a marriage. It's tragic and life-taking in a parent-child relationship. And it's confusing and damaging in a friendship or a neighbor relationship. And all kinds of other things that are appropriate in one relationship but not the other. So scripture says the nature of a relationship determines the behaviors that are appropriate to that relationship. And that's why it's a big deal if we misunderstand the nature of dating or the kind of relationship that it is. That's what's on the line. It's not just that we have an intellectual misunderstanding. It's like, oh, go read a book and fix that. But our behaviors are flowing out of what we think it is, almost at a subconscious uh, level. So I think we, we, we misunderstand dating in two big ways. I'm sure there's more than two, but to kind of boil it down, I think in at least two big ways. First, we make dating into some cosmically new, significant, like, status of relationship. It's like once we have draped the mantle of official boyfriend, official girlfriend, we don't use that language, but once we've clarified that and defined and classified the relationship, I'm this to you and you're this to me now, and we have this new status, we think and we feel a lot of times that we're kind of like on this new plane. We're in this new category. Something's radically different about us now that we are boyfriend and girlfriend or now that we're dating. And because we think we're in a new status of relationship, we start behaving out of that new status that we think we're in. And because we can't find God speaking about this new status of dating or modern dating in the Bible, we supply the behaviors that are appropriate to that, right? And we get into the the weird porch conversations with trusted friends of like, how early is it to say, uh, like, how early is too early to say I love you? Or how late is too late? Or what's the deal with like, what kind of kissing, what kind of physical stuff, what kind of sexual stuff is okay for dating, but not this or that? That's when we get into all these weird things that we're just kind of winging and making up, not even with bad intentions sometimes, we're just trying to figure it out. Remember what the authors of that orange book, which I forgot to buy more of, I'll get them for next week. But they said uh, last week, unlike previous generations, which understood the term dating as a verb to refer to something a guy and a girl did, the modern concept of dating often refers to something they are, a status. And in doing so, we've created, apart from the Bible, our own category of male-female relationships. And we also invented what behaviors fit this new invented category. So look, again, to clarify, dating is an activity. Uh, we should hold the line and say, the Bible doesn't have a problem with that. Dating is an activity. It's just describing our, the way our culture's kind of come up with moving from friend to something more. But, but dating as a status is what we're warning against. Because it's not a status God says exists. It's play world. 
It's pretend, and it'll hurt. Second reason why we misunderstand the nature of it, and then we'll move on to the new stuff. Maybe you've heard this stuff before. Maybe you grew up in a little bit more of a, I don't know, like a chaperoned home or a a little bit of a sheltered home, and you're like, I get this. I knew this all along. It saved me a lot of heartbreak. Thank you, Mom and Dad. You realize that dating's not some new big level or status, but... When you, fi- like when you try to file dating and you're like, does it go in the marriage folder or the family folder or the friendship folder? You put it in the marriage folder. And you're like, well, it's kind of like a on its way to marriage, so it kind of goes here in the marriage folder. I'm trying to figure out if, I can, if we have a future with this girl or a future with this guy. And the results are the same as the other people who think it's some new giant status because we file it under that, we start kind of sliding into this pseudo-marriage with pseudo-married behaviors, covenantal kinds of behaviors. Like I said last week, it's appropriate and healthy and good that Anna and I feel jealous for each other because she is mine. And I am hers. I'm all of hers. I'm not shared with anybody else. She should get jealous if she loves me. There's a possessiveness that's there that's appropriate to that relationship but not appropriate outside of that relationship. Uh, We get sideways with this, though. It's like you might think of, like, how I need to spiritually lead my girlfriend, but wait, you're thinking covenantally. You're not her leader. You're not not her head. Paul said the husband is the head of the wife and is to give his life for her and serve her and love her, not the boyfriend is the head of the girlfriend. So why are you thinking about leading her? Her leader, your leader, your pastor, your parents. We think covenantally because we're sliding into these marriage behaviors We're emotionally intimate. We talk about things that probably are creating a ton of momentum towards other kinds of intimacy. There's a growing sense of exclusivity or we should spend all our time together or you resent the other person for not spending more time with you, sliding into marriage behaviors. And we're unwilling to accept the inherent insecurity of dating, the inherent insecurity of dating. And so we try to lock it down, whatever way is characteristic to you. Um, I need him to say I love me again. I need him to say, I look good in this clothes, or I need her to do this. I need her to remind me of this. Whatever it is, we, we, just we're so anxious. We need the other person to kind of keep us filled up, keep us secure, remind us that it's safe. But the relationship is inherently insecure because the exit door is open, and everybody knows it. Because by definition, it's not committed. So look, no matter how we misunderstand the nature of dating, we, most of us end up in the same place in the kitchen playing with the gas knobs, not realizing it's not a toy kitchen, it's the real kitchen. And there's a lot on the line, namely our hearts, our sexuality, our attraction, our friendships, our friend groups. And by the way, some of us never venture into this territory entirely because who wants all the stuff I'm talking about? You're like, I'd rather just stay back and not have to deal with any of this. I'm not gonna take myself off the market, just not bother with this. We're terrified of dating or getting to know a guy or a girl in that way because we also believe the delusion that it's a pseudo-marriage and it's just crushing us with expectations. And some of us have done the pseudo-marriage thing and been broken up with or broke up with the other and you experienced the pseudo-divorce, right? You were like, is it supposed to rip my heart this severely? Are we supposed to be like dividing up who gets what friends, who gets RUF, who gets church, who gets the intramural team? 
What's going on here? This is not the way it was supposed to go. So we all need help, right? You didn't need the first 10 minutes to establish the fact that we all need help. I mean, the serial daters among us need help. The never daters among us need help. The brokenhearted, the hearts are in the process of healing. The confused, we all need help. And what a good thing to need because it's the thing that God loves to give, second only maybe to grace. He loves to help. And this part of your life is very important to him. He loves it. He thinks it's important. He thinks it's so worth talking about. He thinks it's so worth hearing about in your prayers or your groans and mine too. We'll talk about that as we wrap up. But first, let's dance around some of these things on your page in a few minutes and ask ourselves the question, enough with all the metaphors, let's get down to talking about what does it look like to date or befriend in a wise and a healthy way way. Well, first, big picture, if God doesn't categorize dating as kind of underneath the marriage heading, where does he put it? Friendship, which means this. Here's a big idea, thesis, as it were. If God puts marriage as kind of a subcategory of friendship, it's a kind of friendship, a really close friendship, an intentional friendship, here's what that means. The behaviors, the expectations, the expressions of affection, the levels of commitment that fit how I treat my boyfriend or my girlfriend, fit my close friendships too. There's a parallel there. The expectations, the level of commitment, the expressions of affection, the behaviors that typify my really close friendships should also be the things that typify my relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend because it's a friendship. It's a kind of friendship. So look, hear this. I mean, Samuel might be hearing this as a giant buzzkill, and you're like, what is he talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. Relax. Dating is just friendship. Take a deep breath. Let the pressure just lift off your shoulders. It's not a mini-marriage. It's an intentional friendship between a guy and a girl who are trying to figure out if there's more road in front of them on this path of getting to know each other and wanting to be together. Everybody in the room is somewhat experienced and an expert in building friendships. You know how to do that. So you're on familiar terrain, more familiar terrain than unfamiliar terrain when we start talking about dating. You know this realm, right? So the best advice I think I ever got was two words. And it was uh, from a lady who makes me smile when I think of her. Uh, I was in Philadelphia, Anna and I dated long distance while I was in school and she was in Colorado and we would see each other about every six weeks on the weekend. Either I would fly out there for the weekend or she would come to see me. And I was um, on my street corner going to the trolley to get to the airport and Stacy Bartholomew, who's our, uh, the, um, Tuck's my pastor's wife, just amazing woman, probably the wisest person I've ever met. She goes, she passes me in her car, and she rolls down her window, and she knows that I'm an overthinker. She knows that I'm just crushed with all these, just overthinking everything, and she goes, Ben, have fun, and then she just drives off, and in retrospect, I don't even tell that story because I think it's funny. I tell it, I really do think of some of the wisest advice I got. Have fun. Enjoy the gift of an amazing friend like Anna in an amazing place like Colorado. 
God's given you a great thing here. Enjoy it. Don't let it crush you. But if dating is just a friendship, an intentional friendship with a guy and a girl kind of exploring what's next, buckle up. Because don't friendships take a lot of work and a lot of thought and intentionality? Ooh, boy, they do. Go listen to a few weeks ago when we talked about Proverbs on friendship. Those are labor-intensive things. So she would say, have fun and be wise in this friendship that you and Anna are building and exploring. Um, I told you about a year ago, we were talking about Ruth and Boaz when we were going through that series in a, in a message we were calling, I think, um, Redemptive Romance. And I told you about another story from our time in Philadelphia. When Anna would come visit me, uh, we ran out of all the cool tourist stuff to do after like a year or two. We dated long enough to hit all the big stops in Philadelphia. And so we were like having to branch out to the suburbs at this point. And apple picking is a big thing to do up there. And so I always, um, when we were doing this, I was as fascinated in like the operation of the thing as I was in like actually going around and picking the apples and stuff. So um, I thought of this comparison of like how we often look at dating versus what it actually is. We often look at dating as this kind of like skipping through an apple orchard, just picking all this beautiful red fruit, when in actuality what it is, is planting an apple tree and watering it and pruning it and growing it and fertilizing it and waiting and waiting and waiting as fruit grows and you enjoy it. So uh, a person kind of stuck in the delusion of modern dating says, you want an apple? Let's go pick some. And somebody who's becoming wise and is waking up to this reality that it's, it's, it's a friendship that we're cultivating, says, you want an apple? Let's plant an apple tree. And let's grow this thing together. Um, one is a consumeristic attitude of, I sure hope this other person has arrived and has some amazing fruit for me. I'm going to pick it all off, and when the trees come, it's kind of starting, it's not producing more fruit, and, and it looks like I've used up everything that's great there for me, I'm kind of like losing interest and moving on. And, the other, and you know the other person's doing that to you too. Kind of a parasitic relationship, accidentally maybe. No effort, just an expectation that this should just be awesome all the time, frolicking through an orchard, picking apples. The other is a sober um, and probably joyful eager attitude of, okay, this is going to take some work and a lot of time, but uh, this is going to be really fun too. Like, we get to do this together. We get to enjoy the work together and the joy of seeing fruit grow. We get to decide together what needs to be cut off, what needs to be trained up. So again, enough with the metaphors and stories, Ben. Get specific. Okay, we can do that. What does planting this tree look like? What does wise pursuit look like? What does godly dating look like? Here's some basics first, and we'll move on. Beware, or be suspicious of your motives in dating. I'm not saying your motives are always going to be bad or wrong. I'm just saying be circumspect. Here's why. Um, when God looks at our hearts and he talks to us, he says, hey, come here, come here. And he pulls you up on his lap and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what your heart is like because your heart is fooling you about what your heart is like. But here's what your heart is like. Your heart is prone to forsake me. The fountain of living water. 
and you're prone, even though you have access to a fountain, a Niagara Falls of living resurrection water, it gets so crazy. You're prone to, le- to turn your back on that and to go to like some park bathroom and fill it up in this leaky little bowl and carry around this water that you're trying to get life from. He's saying that's how deceptive and crazy our hearts are left to ourselves. And your heart is where your motives come from, where your desires come from. So that's why our motives can seem so real and convincing and yet be so errant and all over the place. Um, Learn from the woman at the well that we looked at last fall when we were going through the Gospel of John. Let her teach you. As she says, friends, let me save you. A man is not living water. Attention from a girl is not soul-sustaining, life-refreshing water. Sex, intimacy, emotional connection can't satisfy you. It won't. It'll leave you with permanent, unquenched thirst. So be circumspect of our motivations. Are you looking for a guy or for a girl or just in any kind of relationship to be that divine friendship that we've been talking about? You're asking somebody else to be your everything. You'll end up resenting them when they're not, or they'll resent you when you're not. There's only one who can be your everything. There's only one living water. There's only one fountain of living water. There's only one life and resurrection. There's only one rock to build your life upon, and everything else he says is sand, and you will implode if you try to put the weight of something as heavy as a human life on top of it. Check your motives, and make sure you're not looking for a boy or a girl to do what only your maker can do, the ways only he can satisfy you and sustain you. Another maybe basic thing that for us to talk about up front is know this, Ecclesiastes 3.5, for everything, for everything, for everything, there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Then he talks about a lot of stuff, and one of those is a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There's a season where it's wise to date, and there's seasons where it's not wise to date. I mean, I don't know exactly what all those would be. It requires wisdom, discernment, and conversation with wise and godly people to figure out. But, um, for example, just to make it practical, are you a serial dater, either successful? You've got like, you know, 12 people in your past that you've dated and broken up with, or are you an unsuccessful serial dater who's just depressed because you really want that but haven't gotten that? Could this be a season where God is kind of calling you to pull over and sit with the woman at the well and let her teach you about the beautiful Jesus that met her and satisfied her? Could that be a worthy motivation to kind of take yourself off the market, as it were, and to say, I am impossibly inclined to try to turn you into my God if I date you or, or we have this relationship with each other and it's not fair to you and it's not safe for me. So I need to pull over. There could be a season where it's wise to not even entertain the possibility of dating. Are you in a really, 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 really rough, confusing season of life right now and you don't even have a sense that you know who you are? oh, I think it might be a wise season to not ask somebody else to hitch themselves up to you 
human lives are these dynamic things. They're not static. They're not like this mic stand that's just there until it's acted upon. It's like me. We move. We are becoming people. We're in motion. If you don't know who you are or where you are, how is it fair to ask somebody else to get on board with you and wander around? It might be a wise season to pull over. Maybe you're in a really fruitful season of ministry, and you're kind of like, I feel like this is almost like an either or, like either I can have a relationship right now or I can do this and I really love this and I think it's fruitful and making a big impact and I just know myself, I think this would be so distracting that it would pull me off of this mission. It could be wise. Then there could be wise seasons to pursue it and to step into it. Third thing, know that our attractions need retraining. They just do. They need redeeming from animalistic attractions to human, humanized, redeemed attractions. The Bible, when it talks about sin, it's often kind of personifying sin as animalistic stuff. It kind of, it, it, it knocks us off the pedestal of humanity and bearing the image of God, and it describes us as like beasts. These unthinking little animals that are just like, you know, in heat. I'm off over there, and then I'm off over here. I caught a scent. I caught a glimmer. I caught a sight. I'm driven by instinct and sensuality. Our attractions need retraining. Friends, let me say this gently because we're all people who are prone to just feel our attractions and follow them. If you're just feeling attractions, whatever they are, sexual attractions, physical attractions, whatever, and just mindlessly following them, that's not wisdom. You're following a guide with a horrible reputation for getting people lost and hurt. Our attractions need to be retrained. Uh, here's why. We're often, a, a lot of people, I'm not, I guess I wouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people are just attracted to just mere externals. The way her legs look, or the way his chest looks, or his humor, or their personality right now, or, the, or their status in the friend group, their popularity. And there's nothing wrong with being attracted to people physically and saying, like, she's really cute, he's really cute. I, I, there's nothing wrong with that so long as that's the start and not the whole, not the end, too. That's what gets your attention to get to know somebody better and to get, them know, to get to know them in a more holistic way. That's fine. But the problem is when we stop there, we dismiss about 90% of the people that are in any given room that are perfectly qualified to befriend and get to know and learn to care for and see if there's something in the future there. But we just dismiss them immediately, never even entertain the thought because they're not our type. Here's a litmus test of whether foolishness or wisdom is residing in your heart. When you describe your type, do you start describing physical or personality characteristics that fade with time? Or do you start describing inner attributes, character qualities that only ripen with time? When you hear that question, what's your type? Do you start thinking blonde, brunette, tall, short? Or do you start thinking patient, self-controlled, generous with his time? He's got time for people. Uh, she's wise. That's a litmus test of what's going on in your heart right now. If, it, if it's dominated and inhabited by foolishness that's blinded you to 90% of a human being or wisdom that's letting you see into that person. 
Here's what's on the line. Proverbs 11:22. it's on your page. Like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a pretty girl or boy, because remember, Proverbs is talking to a group full of boys. It applies to the other two. Like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a pretty girl with no discretion. You just like, you see that ring and you're like, oh, it's so beautiful. And you're, someone's like, zoom out, zoom out. <laughs> First Corinthians 4.16 and 1 Peter 3.3 3 are on your sheet too. And Paul says, outwardly, we, our bodies, are wasting away. They're bound to decay, just like the rest of creation. The law of entropy. Nothing's getting prettier naturally or more constructed and put together naturally. Things are decaying and disintegrating. Um, you're at the peak, friends. Enjoy the peak. At age 24, I pulled a muscle in my back, reaching for the remote control on my couch. <laughs> if you are making lifetime decisions on temporary, transitory, external, and fading characteristics, you are voluntarily signing up for a very lonely future. 1 Peter 3, 3, Peter describes what God finds attractive and what we will find attractive as our attractions are retrained and sanctified and redeemed. He says, your beauty, y'all's beauty, should not come from outward adornment, hairstyles, the wearing of gold or jewelry or nice clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. He's talking about those deep inner qualities that get sweeter and ripen with time and blossom with time. It's how you look at older folks and you're like, how are they like all over each other and still in love? I mean, they look like they might have died like a year ago. <laughs> because they've become better and better friends every year they've been married because it wasn't about the way she looked or the way he looked on their wedding day. It was about who they were inside and it was captivating and only getting better as the spirit of Jesus puts them back together beginning in this lifetime. So why don't we just agree to minor on looks and major on the insides, on character, on godliness, on patience, on the fruit of the spirit, whatever it is. Proverbs 26 this is an inner quality. Many a man proclaims his steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? Faithfulness is a good thing for you to look for. Who's steady? Who keeps showing up? Who's not a fair weather fan of friendships or commitments, but who's there even when it's hard? An excellent wife, who can find? Proverbs 31, 11. She's far more precious than jewels. Proverbs is saying, mm, these people, they're hard to find. They're hard to find. It's not low-hanging fruit to find someone with inner beauty, character, integrity, weight to their life. It's hard to find somebody who's going places with Jesus. It's hard. It's a, it's a longer search. But this is the X on the map of your search. Um, think about it. With a seeing-eye dog, you think about these things, and you say, uh, would you ever want to be led around by a dog? Let's say you're blind. And someone just hands you a golden retriever and says, here's the leash. Um, this is your seeing eye dog, but its senses have never been retrained, never been meticulously honed. Um, that's going to be a wild adventure. 
versus a dog that's been trained for two years down to the tiniest little detail. Every scent, every sight, every sound has been trained and honed and refined. And it's helpful now, and it keeps you safe. Our attractions need to be refined because untrained, unsanctified, undisciplined attraction is a fatal attraction. This leads us to number four, appreciate character and how long character takes to form. Character is a castle, not a sandcastle. It takes decades to build, not 15 minutes. I don't say this because it's like if, it, as you're you know, befriending somebody, you, you already know a guy, you already know a girl, and you're like, I really like them. I really like them. I want to spend a lot more time with them. And you're like getting to know them, hanging out together. And you start noticing over time these like deep character deficits. I'm not saying like be consumeristic and be like, well, no sinners for me. No people who are still in process for me. I'm not saying that. I'm saying count the cost though and sober up. Character is not something that turns on a dime and you have one conversation. I'm concerned about your self-control. You kind of like get drunk every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. That bothers me. And they're like, okay, I won't do that as much. Okay, that's a sandcastle view of character. Doesn't happen that way. I mean, unless you're miraculously converted, which can happen, it's a castle. It's something that's built over time. So when you see the real thing, though imperfections remain and deficits remain, it's significant when you see someone with character. Number five, pay attention to your desires and your likes, but don't let them master you. Paul Tripp has the best definition, I think the most wise definition of compatibility I've ever come across. And he said, it's easier to love people you like. You know what I mean. Some of your roommates are easier to do the hard work of love and patience and overlooking a multitude of sins. And they're easier to love because you enjoy them. You like them, right? There's other roommates you might have or other friends that um, you don't like as much. You just don't enjoy them, their presence as much, and they're harder to do the same, work, same hard work of love, right? I felt like that was a good balanced definition of compatibility in a biblical way. So you can pay attention to your likes. We're attractional creatures. God made us that way. We enjoy certain things. We enjoy other things less. So the question is, do you enjoy the presence of this person? Do you feel at home around them? Do you feel like you can be you? Versus, do you feel like you're always in audition mode, always performing, or they're always performing? Uh, C.S. Lewis said, a friend is someone who knows the song of your heart and reminds you the words when you've forgotten. That's a good thing to look for. Um, that's a good thing to look for. If the goal is to marry your best friend, it's a great thing to look for. But take compatibility with a grain of salt. Especially with apps, which I think I'm a fan of. I mean, it solves a lot of the, uh, are, we, are we kind of like headed in the same direction in life? But the problem is we try to think about compatibility in an algorithmic way. You forget the fact that you're only ever going to befriend, date, marry a sinner. An imperfect person who's still in process, who still needs help, who needs to grow. Tim Keller says you never marry, nobody ever marries the right person because you're gonna have to be a part of that person's growth and sanctification and security in the gospel. And so compatibility is a fine thing to pay attention to so long as it doesn't have a capital C. And you're like, oh my gosh, we don't like the same concerts. We don't both like to hike. That's hogwash. Your compatibility needs to be gospel compatibility. Can actual, is actual you 
compatible? Do, does actual you fit with actual her or actual him? Not your idealized self, not your aspirational self, but real you with all your struggles, your hangups, the places you get stuck. Can she be a helpful friend and presence in your life in that area? Can he come to your aid in that area and be a friend to you in that area? Or, or is it out of his wheelhouse? It's not something that's familiar to him. He doesn't know how to help there, and you're all alone in that spot. That's a, that's a wise compatibility question. As we talk about compatibility, we see in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, that Paul says, uh, do not be unequally yoked. And he said, he's talking particularly about marriage, and he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? And, especially today, you might think, geez, that sounds puritanical and old-fashioned. Is this still in play? Like, how does this apply to dating? Um, does missionary dating work? I mean, maybe sometimes. I'm sure there's people in the room and it's worked for you. I don't think the Bible says you just expect it to work or use that as a strategy. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. And here's the reason why this equal yoking, which is an agricultural term of two ox or cattle with this wooden thing over their uh, over their necks to help them move in tandem. Trajectory and pace. You might be as close as me and this podium are to this guy or girl right now, but if you are on different trajectories, which you are if you're a believer and they're not, or vice versa, you might be this close right now, but if she's aimed that way and you're aimed this way, becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming less and less like the God who made them, oh, you feel so close now, but five years, 10 years, 50 years, Every day you spend together, you know the other person less. You get them less. And pace is also important. If you're yoked together with another person, somebody's either getting dragged or somebody's slowing down. Go figure. What do you think happens? Do you think one animal just has the energy to keep dragging along the weight of another? Or do you think that animal finally says, oh, this is exhausting, and they slow down? That's why this is unwise. Paul's talking about existential compatibility. Are you and this person headed in the same direction, becoming a similar person in Jesus, loving and coming alive at the same things? Wise dating is guarded and intentionally paced. Number six, as we wrap this up, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart. It's the headquarters of your life. Part of guarding our hearts as we befriend people and get to know them or as you're dating is to be wisely clear about your intentions. So you're hanging out, you're getting to know each other, you're doing friendship the way you do with other people, and at some point you're like, I really like this person. Um, it's okay to say in whatever way fits you or your relationship, I like you. Um, and if they do too, clarify, uh, are we up for this? Let's keep hanging out. Let's get to know each other better. That's quite different from I love you, I love you, I love you on the second week, right? And the problem with talking about us and saying things like that so soon is that it creates intimacy. It doesn't just express affection. It creates intimacy and affection and momentum. And unless you're ready to think about marriage very soon, those kind of things are hitting the gas pedal toward marriage. Song of Songs 8.4, don't awaken love before it's time. Once it's awake, it has a hard time going back to sleep. Once it's alive, it's a morning person, all chipper and all up in your business, and you're like, can you go back to bed? And it's like, no, I'm a morning person. I'm awake. 
Proverbs says, your father says, pace yourself. Pace yourself. It's a friendship. Pace yourself. Lastly, healthy friendships look more like friendships than the marriage they're aimed at wondering, can we do this? Is this for us? And so wise relationships hang out in groups. They don't spend every waking hour together. They serve each other. They seek Jesus together. They share mission together. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us consider. Let us consider. Let us think. Let us strategize. Let us listen, learn the person to help them toward Jesus and toward good deeds. And Hebrews 12 says, anything that keeps you from running the race that Jesus has marked out for you, anything that hinders your run towards life, towards freedom in him, has to be laid aside. This is a gentle test of relationship. Is this person helping me run? Is this person encouraging me when it hurts, when it's painful, when I got shin splints and I don't want to do it anymore, I'm going to throw in the towel? Is this friend saying, come on, I'm with you, press on, I'm going to pray with you, I'm going to help? Or is this person not even know how to encourage you because they don't even know you're running? They don't feel the pain. They don't know the goal that you're running towards. These are ways that we can discern where this relationship is going. Friends, I want to end here, and it ends the poll series in Proverbs. Do you believe God cares about this part of your life? Do you believe this is something you talk to your father about, or is this something you like talk to your friends at lunch about, but you don't ever talk about it at the family dinner table back home with dad? Is he the kind of dad he's the first person you want to run this stuff by, or is he the last? It reveals what you think about his heart. If you think he's good, and he's a giver, and he's brilliant, and he's patient, and he's for you, and he's committed to you, and he's relentless, we will find ourselves listening to him more and more in this area of our life, which is not an area of life we're prone to listen to him. And we'll come to him for cleansing, and for grace, and for change, and for growth. And when we're white-knuckling it, we'll have a refuge and a rock to stand on as we know we have him. Friends, if you don't know this God, he sent his son to come and find you and drag you to the family table and make you son or daughter. There's one way to the Father, there's one way to life, there's one way to true wisdom, and it is Jesus Christ, the wise one. And he invites you today, and he expects and asks and anticipates a response. What will you do with him? What will you do with life? What will you do with wisdom as he pursues you? Respond. Let's pray. Jesus, let us hear your voice. This is your word. My words are impotent. They have no power, but your words are resurrection words. You say to Lazarus, rise, and he rises. You say in the valley of dry bones, rise up, and they rose up. So speak with your voice now and make these dead words come alive inside of us and around us. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you, Father, for letting us draw near to you in Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.